I cannot think of a more fitting hymn for us to have sung than that right there, Shine, Jesus, Shine, before this message. While we were singing, I had to resist the urge. Uh, the other day, my daughter and my wife, myself, uh, my mother-in-law, and my son were all in a bodega. We had gone to the park and had a really great time, and we went to this bodega to get a treat afterward. And we were, we were in the back of the store, and, and I had walked to the front to get something, and I just heard a conversation going on between my wife and my daughter. And, and my daughter had asked my wife, my daughter's name is Colby, she asked my wife Haley, are we going to get the cookies or are we going to get the ice cream? And my wife looked at her and said, we're going to get both. And she turns around and runs toward the front of the store and says, praise the Lord. <laughs> and so as we were listening to that song, I had to resist the urge to say, praise the Lord, because that is just such a heartfelt song. Honestly, it's exactly where my heart is and exactly the message that God has placed on my heart uh, for us today. So if you would turn to Jude it's between 3rd John and Revelation, so almost the very end of your Bibles, you will find the book of Jude. And we are going to go through the whole book of Jude today, but don't be too um, intimidated. It's only one chapter, so um, probably not more than a page and a half in your Bible. But there's a very important message in Jude that I think the Lord has for us this morning. It's something that he's laid on my heart over and over again the, the past several months and what I think is so cool about this scripture in particular, like most scripture, it's very flexible. It, it fits in a lot of different situations. And you may be feeling the things we're going to talk about here in Mansfield in a different way than I am feeling them in New York. But I believe that that same message is true for the both of us, and God has it to speak to us. So before we jump into Jude, I'd like to give you just a really brief update on how things are going in New York. Uh, my wife and I currently live in Queens. Uh, we were living in Brooklyn. We moved just outside of Brooklyn into Queens, and we are literally on the border of Brooklyn and Queens. In fact, I throw right-handed. I could put a baseball in my left hand and hit Brooklyn from where we live. That's how close we are. And so we get to um, enjoy the, the best parts of, of what Brooklyn has to offer and what Queens has to offer, and we're also still not far from the city. So I feel like God has moved us to this very perfect location. Since I'm trying to do college ministry across the entire city, he has us in a very central location where we can easily get to many parts of the city in, in about the same amount of time. Um, in fact, from our roof, we have a beautiful view of the entire city. Um, we have a, a nice view of the Manhattan skyline, but I can also look over and see Brooklyn. I can see Queens. I can see uptown and into the Bronx, and oftentimes... I like to pray for the city, and I'll, I'll sometimes go up at night with my daughter, and we'll look at all the buildings. That's one of our favorite things to do, and we'll pray for the different parts of the city as God has led us to reach college students in New York City. So I, my title is a lengthy one. I, I believe I shared it with you last time I was here, but I'll share it with you again. I am the Metropolitan New York Baptist Association Collegiate Coordinator. So what that means is I coordinate collegiate ministry for all the campuses that are within the 40-mile radius of Times Square. So that includes some eastern parts of New Jersey, some uh, northeastern parts of Pennsylvania, southern parts of Connecticut. If you add that entire 40-mile radius, there are over 120 universities in that radius. There's about 82 just in New York City. 
and there are over one million college students. And so I, I forget the exact stat. I think I shared this with you guys last time as well, but that would make, that would make the college student population in, in the metro area of New York City like the 18th or 20th largest city in America, just college students. And so God has given us this incredible opportunity to reach these students. And, and the way we're going about that is to connect with the City University of New York, otherwise known as CUNY. And God has opened so many doors uh, through attacking college ministry through that venue. And so right now, a year and a half ago, I was at the point where I wanted to co- connect with as many campuses as possible. So over the course of a year, we connected anywhere from 10 to 12 campuses, and we have three ministers right now. So now I'm at the point where I know we have the proper strategy to reach the campuses and to be on campus. And so now what I'm doing is I'm approaching people from across the country within New York City that have an interest and a passion to serve college students and seeing what God is going to do with that. Because at this point, if I had 50 campus ministers, I could connect them and 50 campus ministers could be working in New York City. And that for me over the course of just a year is extremely, extremely exciting. God is moving in incredible ways through college ministry. He's also moving through our church plant. We actually just planted another church to the adjacent neighborhood. Our church is currently in Astoria, which is a neighborhood in Queens, and there's an adjacent neighborhood right next to Astoria named Woodside. And so we just planted a church in Woodside, and God is just doing incredible things in New York. And so I just thought, before we start off, I wanted to share some of the great things because we know with recent legislation and pop culture and things, we we get this idea of where all the mindsets of people are in a certain area, but that's not necessarily true. And so I want you to know that even in the midst of things that sound so difficult and so upsetting and so frustrating, and as frustrating and upsetting as they are for you, you can imagine how frustrating and upsetting they are for the Christians who are in New York City who are, you know, in this fight every single day. But God is still moving. And so I want us to be aware of that. And that's where my heart for this message came from. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. If you would, turn to Jude. Maybe it wasn't the best idea that I stayed with Philip last night. I told him this morning, I said, I don't think it's going to affect anything I'm doing today. But my throat is a little sore this morning. And he said, that is not good. <laughs> um, so we, we will make it through today, though, I promise. So we're going to start off. Um, chapter 1, the only chapter, in verse 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So Jude starts off this letter, and he wants to make it very clear exactly who he's speaking to. He's speaking to followers of Christ. He's speaking to those who have been kept for Christ, and he's offering them love and peace and mercy. And he goes on to say, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so Jude wants to write to this group of people and say, Man, how awesome is it that we're in Christ? How amazing is it that God wants to do these things through us? How amazing is it that God has already used us to do some of these things? He's writing to them as a spiritual leader who wants to celebrate with them, but he finds it necessary to do what? He has to, he has to appeal to them to contend for the faith. And so how many times can we think of in our lives where our spiritual leaders probably wanted to come to us and celebrate and say, man, listen to all these amazing things God is doing. 
But instead of being able to do that, they had to appeal to us to contend for our faith. And so that's giving us an introduction into where this letter is going to continue. Verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so this is where the, the problem or the issue is introduced. There was the introduction into, I'm going to need to talk to you about contending for our faith. I can't talk to you about celebration because something is going on. And then he gives us the something. And that something is that people have crept in in our churches, in our communities, and surrounded us who are perverting the grace of Christ into sensuality. And what that means is they're, they're putting God's grace within a box of, of sensuality, meaning you have to feel it, right? And how many times have we seen that in our society where if, if it doesn't feel good, then you shouldn't do it. If it doesn't make you feel good, then it's not for you. If it's something that's difficult, then just toss it aside. That is a very, very popular idea in our culture. Our culture teaches us that if we don't like it, we don't have to do it, and that's what's healthiest for us. Whatever our truth is, is the truth we should speak. There is no absolute truth. Whatever benefits us, specifically us at the time, is what is best for us. And we know that Scripture teaches us differently. But now we also know that this is not something that is new. This is an idea that has been around for a long time. So let's continue. In verse 5, it says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so Jude wants to let the believers that he's speaking to know that God is not playing games. He is prepared to punish these people that have crept in in the same way that he has always punished these people. And so I feel like a lot of times we can get into our daily routine and things can start to feel extremely mundane and we begin to lose sight of all the small things, all the small, minute moments that are happening around us. Or maybe we don't even lose sight of them. We just feel like these, these minor moments are not all that important. And so what Jude is reminding these people who have essentially fallen asleep to the fact that all these bad things are happening around them and that these people have crept in and that they're affecting the way that they view Christ, he's reminding them, this will be punished. It may not seem like a big deal now that this slight, um, this slight decision to not follow Christ in this minor way may not feel like a big deal, but it's going to lead up to big things. And when those things have led up, ultimately... God will punish those things. While we're talking about small moments, I just want to share a story that my grandmother shared with me, one that I've heard a lot of times, but in the context of preparing for this message, it just really hit me, and I thought, man, what an incredible, incredible testimony about small moments that we think may not mean much. When my grandmother was five years old, she was at school, and her friends 
father was going to give them a ride home from school. So they were walking toward the car, and her, her friend's father pulled in, and he stopped. And they thought, okay, he's stopping for us to get into the vehicle. And so her friend goes to enter the vehicle on the passenger side, and she runs around behind the car to get into the vehicle on the driver's side. Well, what her friend's father had actually intended to do was to stop and back into this spot on the curb in Parallel Park. So as he backs up, my grandmother's still behind the car, and he hits her and rolls the car up on top of her and then realizes what he had done and had to have been horrified, I can't imagine, and, and pulls forward so that he doesn't continue to run over her. They hop out, they rush her to the hospital, and miraculously, somehow, a five-year-old who got run over by a... a these were not small vehicles back in her day, right? These were all heavy, metal, heavy, heavy vehicles. And she made it. And she's told me that story a bunch of times in the past, and I thought, well, that's crazy. Like, that's crazy, that's crazy. But she told me this past time, and I thought, how insane is it that the split-second decision of someone I will never meet, literally almost 70 years ago now, deciding to back into a spot almost meant that I wasn't alive. And it almost meant that 19 other people at this point were not alive. And that moment will just, as time goes by, that moment will continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger because we're only going to continue, hopefully, to healthily multiply our family. And that would never have happened if she did not make it through that instant. And so as you go throughout your day and all these moments that seem so small to you because we exist within the confines of time and we can't see past where we are, know that God exists outside the confines of time. And he knows, every, he knows the gravity of every single moment the second that it happens because he knows what that moment is going to lead to. And so as we sit and we think, oh, this, this poor decision that I'm making right now, it's not that big of a deal, it's just one choice. Or this, this decision of mine to not follow Christ in this area of my life that he's calling me to follow him, it's just one small choice, it's not a big deal. Know that to you what might not be a big deal is the gravity of centuries and centuries of that decision building that God already knows. Let's move on to verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So I want to break down uh, 8 through 13 a little bit. Um, in verse 8, does that sound familiar to anyone? That these people who are creeping in, they rely on their own dreams. They don't rely on what God wants for them or what Christ wants for them. They rely on their own dreams. And I know for me, even as a Christian, 
this is something that is extremely challenging. I'm in New York, and I'm thinking, oh, man, how amazing would it be if we could get on this campus, and then we get on this campus, and then we can go to this place, and then these people can get saved. And, and I, I get to, I'm planning out this whole thing in my head, and sometimes I forget to stop and slow down and ask, is that what you want, God? Or am, am I the precursor to all this that's going to happen? In what way can I be most faithful to you? I think we get in our head, at least for me, I really, really, really want to be obedient to Christ. I want to follow him with my whole heart. And I have a very boxed-in idea of what the results of following with Christ with my whole heart looks like. I feel like if I follow Christ with my whole heart, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people around me will be saved because I'm doing what God wants. Ultimately, I know God wants those people to be saved, but that doesn't mean that my faithfulness to God will directly lead to those salvations. And so how many times do I put myself and God in a box to say, okay, God, I'm following you, and if this outcome doesn't happen, then something's wrong. But what God says is follow me with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and trust the results that I give you. It's not up to me to decide what the results are because, again, something that I do that feels so small in the grand scheme of things to a God who exists outside of time could be the biggest thing I could possibly do for him. And so my challenge is let's not put ourselves and let's not put God in a box. Let's not say A plus B equals C, right? If I do this, then this should happen and this result should come about. Because God is so much bigger than the the quote-unquote big results that we think we can deliver. Outside of a Christian perspective, we see our culture relying on their dreams. And we've already talked about people deciding what they want for their life and our culture saying, if that's what you want, go get it. Whatever you want, whatever you think is true, go after it. And we know that that's a lie. And that's the battle, the main battle that I'm fighting with college students in New York. They're prepared to be successful. They're in a city where they can make any connection they could ever want to make and be as fiscally and professionally successful as they could ever want. But what's really cool is God is starting to reveal to these students that all those things don't matter if you don't have a spiritual health. And so for me, battling, relying on my own dreams while I'm battling teaching students not to rely on their own dreams is probably my biggest challenge. And so I wanted to be very candid and, and share that with you today, that if you feel like, man, I do that, I do that all the time, you're not alone, because I do that. I do that all the time. My students, they do that. They do that all the time. Going through verses 10 through 13, I'll, I'll read those again briefly so we can speak about those. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, unlike unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And so Jude is, is quoting these historic things that have happened. 
They walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. All these historical things that his audience would have recognized as bad things, evil things. These people that have crept in, that you're looking at, and you think, oh, they're not that big. it's not that big of a deal that they're slightly changing the way we look at Christ. That's not that big of a deal. He's reminding them, these are the same types of people that these evil things happened. They participated in these evil things. And essentially what he's saying is, wake up. These people are right next to you, and not only do we not notice it, we're doing absolutely nothing about it. We're not protecting those who are already in Christ, and we're not going after those who are not in Christ to save them. And why? Because we don't even notice that they're there. Wake up, he says. In verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And so he says, look, the Lord will come to punish these people. I think my perspective of how I read Jude has changed since I've moved to New York and since I've continued to mature in Christ. When I first read through Jude, I thought, man, those are bad people. And isn't it great that one day God is going to come in and they are going to receive justice? Because how many times do the people around me mistreat me? How many times do I see terrible decisions being made? And they seemingly get off scot-free. They seemingly don't have to face any punishment while I am struggling to follow Christ. And it seems like every time something happens that is wrong in my life, I'm getting the full brunt of life. That's how I used to read Jude. I thought, man, at least in the end, I wouldn't go as far to say as they're going to get what they deserve. But I would think at least in the end, they're going to have to face consequences. Now I read Jude and I think, How terrible is it that if I don't reach these people, they're going to be punished with tens of thousands of the Lord's angels. They're going to receive that punishment. And the Lord is prepared to dole out that punishment for these people. And so from a different perspective, or different perspective, I would urge you to look at this scripture the way Jesus would. 100% truth. That these people, they, they can't just not be punished, right? They will be punished. But also look at it with 100% grace and say there's something that we can do about that. We can reach out to these people. First, we can wake up and notice where these people are. And second, we can go after them for Christ. Philip was my uh, campus minister and then I, I worked for him, which was a very interesting relationship um, because we were also really, really good friends. But I think the Lord just really blessed he and I with this ability to separate things that were going on at work from how we would hang out in our personal life. And honestly, that's something that I'm trying to perfect with an intern that I have right now because he and I are really good friends. And I'm, I'm trying to really, really 
set the boundaries at work. So it's like, hey, when I say these things need to get done, they have to get done. And then later on, we can play video games, right? I mean, there's, there's this separation that has to occur. But Philip, when he would confront me about things that he saw in my life when he was my campus minister and when I was working with him, maybe he's confronted some of you with this, this same tactic. He would call it the spiritual sandwich, okay? And what he meant by that is when you confront someone about something that's going on in their life, maybe I'm giving away a secret that you're not supposed to know. Um, but we might just make sure that this recording doesn't hit the podcast, and then we can just we'll sabotage the recording, and then you can just keep this between us. But he would say, you need to start off with something positive about that person because everybody's got something going on in their life that's good, right? Find the good in that person. And then in the middle, you start off with something good. In the middle, you say, this is what I need from you. I see that this is going on in your life, and this should not be happening, and we need to find a way that we can work on it together so that we can get you back in the, in the right space with God in this area of your life. And then he would say, always end it with, I'm sure you can guess, something else that's good. Even if you have to reiterate the only good thing you could think of, find something else good or reiterate the good thing. And so I find it funny, maybe not funny, funny is a bad word, I find it interesting that Jude is doing the same thing. He greets believers and says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And then he calls them beloved. He lets them know, hey, I love you, and God loves you, and I want peace and mercy and grace to be multiplied to you because you are in God. And then he goes on for about... 12 or 13 verses to say this this can't happen. This should not happen. But then we get to verse 17. And this is really, in your Bible, it's probably called something like a call to persevere or perseverance or something like that where the other part of this spiritual sandwich hits. And Jude is saying, even though this is going on, even though we can see this in our life, this is what we can do about it. And this is where we all need to really lock in and pay attention. I'm actually starting a podcast with students. I'm going to call it Voice of the Future. And it's going to be me sitting down with students, having difficult conversations that no one else is having, and we'll end the podcast by brainstorming and discussing ideas and solutions. Because we have so many people in our society that are so ready to criticize and say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And we have so few people offering up solutions on how to fix those problems. Jude is going to offer up solutions for us right now. So let's lock in and pay attention to that. A call to persevere. Verse 17. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, that's a huge... I would say that's a huge but right there, right? He says, these people are doing this, and, and let's remember, this isn't a surprise that they're doing this. We knew that they would do this. This has been prophesied. This should not be shocking news to you. When I write to you and say, hey, heads up, all this stuff is going on around you, you should know. You really should know, right? It's been written. But what does the Lord have for us? It says in verse 20, but you, beloved, 
building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. When's the last time we looked at someone who was doing something just absolutely terrible? Something that we knew was wrong. Maybe even something to us that we knew was wrong. And we immediately loved them with everything that we had and hated everything that they were doing. And I'm not talking about a selfish hate. Like, hey, I hate that you're doing this because this affects me. I'm talking about a righteous hatred. I'm talking about Jesus flipping over tables in the temple. I'm talking about this is going against my father. And I have to teach you better. How can we expect people to make godly decisions if they do not know God? How can we expect leaders of our country to make godly decisions if we're not praying for them and and appealing to them and appealing to those around them to contend for the faith? If we're not willing to go in and literally, as it says, snatch them out of the fire, that means they are on their way to hell. That means they are almost there. That means they are a couple decisions away from never knowing God. And that means we're willing to go in and grab them before that happens. Not in a complacent, like, oh, I guess I'll invite them to church, and if they come, great. No, you go to where they are. You show them love. You snatch them out of the fire, and you show them there's something so much better for you. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone that you do this for is going to like it. I have plenty of stories of people who do not like that, because that's offensive. If you're going to go tell someone, hey, obviously, you're not going to tell them, hey, you're going to hell. Um, But... If you're going to go tell someone, hey, this in your life is not right, it's not good, it's not pleasing to God, that's offensive. And so we have to pray that God prepares the hearts of those people. This isn't a split-second decision. This is a decision that we make every single day to wake up. Be aware, like Judah's saying, be aware that there are those around you that are destined for punishment that are affecting the way you view your own faith. And as you have this awareness, deal with yourself first. Make sure you have a correct view of who God is in your life and what he's calling you to do. Live in those little moments. Allow those little moments to build up to big things. And while you're doing all that, snatch as many people from the fire as you possibly can and show them what it looks like to live for Christ every single day and every single tiny moment. That's our goal. That's what Jude wants for us. Not to get caught up in, in focusing on our own visions or focusing on our, our own goals or relying on ourselves to do things. But what does he say? Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And wait there for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to what? Eternal life. That's incredible. That's an incredibly hopeful message that we can keep ourselves in the love of Christ, in the love of God, until Christ's mercy hits us. And I think we forget that sometimes. Last couple of verses, and then we'll wrap up. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, 
to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. To the person who can do anything, right? Let the person who can do anything receive all the glory and all the honor and all the power for what we're going to do through him, what he wants to do through us. Quick recap. There's an issue that we're unaware of. Jude is pleading with us and appealing to us and urging us to become aware of those around us who are without Christ, to become aware of those actions, those tiny moments around us that are causing us to pull away from Christ. And rather than pulling away from Christ, what Jude is saying is draw closer to Christ. And all those tiny moments that are happening around you, all those people that are around you that don't know Christ, instead of allowing those to pull you away, you pull those people into Christ. And while you're waiting in this love that God gives you, in this forgiveness that God gives you, in this hope that God gives you that no one else outside of Christ has, while you're waiting in that for the ultimate mercy of Christ's sacrifice to come to you, reach out, almost with one hand on God, right, waiting in love and mercy, and with your other hand, reach out and snatch people who don't know that and bring them into that mercy. Be willing to be the vessel that God uses to bring them into his love and into his mercy. And then at the end it says, we know we can't do this alone, right? To who? To God be all glory and power and honor, the one who is able to do all things. I don't want to extend a a formal invitation. I'll just close this in prayer. But I do want to extend a challenge. And that challenge would be that every single day you choose to view these small moments in the same way that God would view them. As an opportunity, each and every one, an opportunity to be faithful to God and allow him to work through you. Every small moment is that. Whether we see it as that or not, we know from Scripture that's what those small moments are. And I want us to remember in verse 4, Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for the condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is my last challenge to you, and this is the thing that is on my heart the most. It's never easy, but it's a lot easier to live for God in those tiny moments when you can feel God. When you can feel his presence and he's moving in your church, or he's moving in your family, and you're looking around, and maybe half or more of these small moments are positive things that you know for a fact. Man, God is working in my life. Look at all these cool things. But when you don't feel God, and he seems miles and miles and miles away, and all you can do is look at all the the tiny moments around you and think, God's not even here. How can he work through these tiny moments? How can he do these things? I can't even feel him. I'm praying, I'm crying out, I'm saying, Lord, please just bring me into your presence and you don't feel it. Don't allow culture to pervert the grace of our Lord and Savior into sensuality because what Christ did for us is far more than just a feeling. It was a decision and he made the hardest decision to sacrifice himself for us.
And so my challenge to you is when you don't feel God, continue to be faithful in the small moments. Because a relationship with Christ is more than just a feeling. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for giving us the ability to rest in you. Thank you for giving us a calling that is higher than any other calling we could receive in our life. God, thank you for turning mundane, small moments in our life into glorious opportunities to follow you and to bring others into your kingdom. God, I pray that we would remain faithful to you. It's not easy. It's extremely difficult, but we know that you've given us the power to do so. And we know that through you, we can accomplish anything. And we also know that for whatever reason, you've chosen to work through us. We are so humbled and so grateful for that. God, may every moment in our life be this shouting off of a mountaintop that we love you and that we want to serve you no matter what the cost. And when times get difficult, God, I pray that we would always, always, always rest in you in knowing that your promises are true, that you do love us and that you will take care of us. Don't allow our culture to pervert your grace in our life into sensuality. We ask these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.